Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I am joined by Guillermo Escalante. Guillermo, how are you, man? I'm doing great, Corey. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Yes. Well, we've met past couple of years at NSCA conferences and we've had a lot of great discussions there, just talking shop, talking ideas, talking about things that you have going on, things that we both find interesting in, in our field. So I've no doubt that we're going to have a, a great episode today. So before we dive into today's topic, why don't you go ahead and give the listener who you are, what you've done educationally, professionally, and what you're doing now. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Corey. Yeah, so I'm Guillermo Escalante. I'm the assistant dean for the College of Natural Sciences at California State University, San Bernardino. I'm also a full professor of kinesiology. Uh, I've been here about 11 years, and my, my uh, doctorate, doctorate is in athletic training. I actually have a master's in business administration, and I have a bachelor's in athletic training and a biology minor. I also have certifications as an ATC, as a CSCS, and I'm also a certified sports nutritionist through the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Currently, I'm actually the vice president for the International Society of Sports Nutrition, and I'm a fellow for, for the ISSN. And I currently chair the NSCA uh, Bodybuilding and Physique Competition, Fitness Competition Special Interest Group. And I also sit on the advisory board for the National Academy of Sports Medicine, the scientific advisory board for them. So before I came into academia, I actually uh, was out in the field. I worked as an athletic trainer for many years. I owned a, an outpatient physical therapy clinic, personal training studio. I owned a couple of world gyms. So I was in the workforce working in strength and conditioning, in sports medicine, in rehab, in performance enhancement for uh, probably a, a good couple of decades, I would say, because yeah. I, it was a period of time when I was transitioning full-time into academia, where I actually still had my businesses and I was still uh, running the, uh, working my way up the academic ranks. Cause I started as an adjunct here. Then I went to assistant professor, associate professor, and then I uh, eventually full professor. So a few, about six years ago, five years ago, I sold all my businesses uh, related to that. And I've been full time in academia and a couple of times, a couple of years was double dipping full time in academia and running the business at the same time. <laughs> Pretty sure that wasn't busy at all. Wasn't busy at all. Exactly. <laughs> So talk a little bit about the athletic training side, because that's something about you I didn't know and, until I looked at your bio. I'm like, oh, man, this, this guy has an athletic training background. He still is an athletic trainer. That usually does not coincide with physique sport. Like, what's common now is to have powerlifters also be DPTs or powerlifters to be athletic trainers. But as, at least as far as I've seen, it's not as common within the bodybuilding world and the physique world. So what are the reasons you maintain that certification? And then maybe we can even get into how it's influenced your practice or how you train and how you coach. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, so my passion for that began as, as a high school kid. You have injuries and then I was going mm -hmm. to figure out how do I, how do I prevent those injuries? How, how do I fix them? And how do I get better to get back on the field? And then, of course, wanting to the strength and conditioning was how do I get better and bigger, faster, stronger? So that was a very natural match. But uh, yeah, the athletic training uh, has been a very integral part of my 
upbringing, I would say professionally, because I, I started really in the roots. I used to cover the Friday night lights, you know, uh, yeah. Saturday games and uh, do the traditional high school uh, or college athletic training. Uh, so I worked in that for many years. And then I transitioned more into the clinical setting, uh, working more with uh, different types of populations there, you know, workers comp type of individuals or return to sport type athletes. Yeah. Uh, but when I got into bodybuilding in shortly after I finished my master's degree, right around 2000, 2001. And that's when I really began to see all of the stuff that was being uh, touted by the bodybuilders, the bodybuilding community, the fitness community. And I really saw some of the disconnect. I'm like, well, some things didn't make sense. A lot of things mm. didn't make sense. And I was always trying to figure out the why and the how and why you do this. Why do you do that? I asked a lot of questions. And as I was going through the bodybuilding protocols, especially like peak week, I was very intrigued. It's like, why is it the norm to do X, Y, or Z? What is the physiological reason for all of this? And, and then made, made me kind of dig a little deeper into studying physiology and our bodies. And then I really started realizing, like, we don't really have a lot of answers for this stuff. And, like, we really don't know. And lot, some of it is hearsay. Not to say that it was all wrong. Actually, a lot of it is actually right. But mm. it's also a lot that's not quite right. And some stuff that's straight, very dangerous. Then as I progress into that, I, I noticed competing in the bodybuilding circles that there wasn't a lot of medical coverage in these events. A lot of things didn't usually happen, but once in a while you'd have yeah. people cramping or you, you might have somebody maybe collapse, not feel so good. Yep. But then there was an event in 2011 in December. I actually wasn't there, but I had a client who, who was at this event. And then he told me, did you hear about the person that died, the bodybuilder that died backstage? Mm. And then he said, what happened? And sure enough, it was, uh, it was a master's competitor, went through an extreme uh, peak week protocol had some cardiac complications and then there was no, no initial first responder there. And then the guy died by the time the ambulance got there, it was always yeah. too late. So mm -hmm. that's when I reached out to the, to actually the promoter. And I let him know, it's like, Hey, I'm, I'm certified as an athletic trainer. We're trained to be first responders. And I'm also a bodybuilder. I competed in, you know, dozens of your shows. He knew me. And yeah. then we ended up establishing a, a relationship and developed a contract where I became the, the primary medical for the for all of his shows in Southern California. And it was a big Southern California shows. And then they expanded into Las Vegas, uh, San Diego, other areas. So that kind of was the beginning of the, I'm going to say merging of the athletic training sports medicine world with the bodybuilding and, and doing the medical coverage. And I, and I served that role for about seven, eight years. Uh, I, I covered all my weekends. Wow. Always, I was traveling all over oh, yeah. the events. Basically every other weekend I was at a show. It was and a 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. type of endeavor. And and I was able to see a lot of these things. You know, I mean, I, I worked with a lot of pro-level athletes or at the MPC USA Championships, for example. And again, a lot of the part, there wasn't a lot of action, but there were some things that were not a big deal that could be, you know, could be treated. But then there were some things where I was able to intervene and help some people along the way. And then I really began to kind of see the other side of things where, hey, we need to investigate what kind of protocols are being used, what are yeah. what information is being given to these athletes, providing better education, because there were a lot of things that were unsafe. And it, it goes beyond the anabolic steroids. Some people put so much mm. blame on that. Mm -hmm. Of course, that you know, usually play a role, but they're not going to kill you acutely. Yeah, they're, right. Yeah, it, yeah. It, that's a cumulative effect. Mm. The acute things that we see are typically related to extreme dehydration practices and electrolyte uh, practices. Yeah. That's where you see diuretic use. So yeah. that's where you typically see it, which is, that's the scary part for me.
yeah, I mean, you get this severe dehydration and then you start manipulating electrolyte levels and, and that's just, that's a bad combo. And so it makes total sense that should probably be a medical professional somewhere at these shows. And yeah, that's just, I'm not surprised at all that you were totally booked. Not only because you live, probably live in an area where there's just more competitions, but if there's an athletic trainer that like, they're just in such high demand that if there's one available, your services will be utilized. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it was a cool niche to build, be able to do that. Sure. And, 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 and it was good because I got to really experience it from a different perspective. And then, of course, that flowed into, I've, I've coached, of course, hundreds of athletes over the years. And but over the years, I, I even changed my, my coaching principles because mm. as I started, first of all, I tried things myself and I've experimented yeah. and I've done actually borderline questionable <laughs> things myself because we want to win, right? And, yep. and we're competitive. And then you start seeing some of those things and then you start kind of seeing the risk reward ratio. And then you can see, well, you can actually, you don't need to go through some of these crazy protocols and yeah. you can actually get better results. And, and if you do things right, you act, you can mitigate the risks. For sure. And, and get better results actually. Yeah. That's man. That's a great way to, to friend the episode because we're going to talk about advances in the science of bodybuilding, physique sports, and just like some of the things that maybe historically have been done that aren't as optimal, or maybe we found a way to attain the same results via a better method or via a better way. And I think all training related sciences or endeavors are this way where there's always been a heavy amount of experience informing the training, like the practices, like what does experience tell us that works? And then the research somewhat has to catch up. I feel like bodybuilding is such a really good example of that because you're right. We have kind of found a few things that science that research is starting to support that oh yeah back in the day the bodybuilders doing this they didn't really know why they just knew it worked right and now we're finding out that we're no finding out why this works and that they weren't totally wrong from the get-go but yes there's definitely some things that you will highlight that maybe we're that down that road so let's we're just going to work through kind of your uh your big things that you've seen throughout your awesome background and your history in the sport and what are the things that we've gotten some just great science on recently, some advances that really improve the overall practice, safety, and then results of the sport? Yeah. So I think one of the first ones that I came to mind as we were kind of ideating on what we were going to cover in, in, in this episode was the peak week, right? And I was actually on a podcast in 2020, 2019 or so, 2020. And it was, they were asking a lot of questions about peak week and that really kind of sparked an interest in, you know what, there, there's been no real literature, narrative reviews, looking at the literature into like, what are the best evidence-based peak week practices? Mm -hmm. We actually published a paper. I collaborated with Brad Schoenfeld, with uh, Chris Barricat, with Scott Stevenson, with uh, Alan Aragon. And uh, we actually did a deep, deep dive in, and we wrote a huge paper covering everything peak week. And we talked about carb loading, water <laughs> manipulation, electrolyte manipulation. We talked about fat loading. We talked about protein intake. We talked about training. We talked about managing stress, strategies that can be used. And, and we really dove through the evidence. It was kind of a starting point, right? In terms of what do we know? What do we not know? What do we know a little of that need to know more information on? And then what's just straight dangerous that we really should <laughs> work for? And it gave us a, a good overview of that. So 
I think one of the important things to discuss is peak week. And the reason I was leading into the peak week is because as stated earlier, a lot of people put so much hope in what mm. the results that can happen in that peak week. And, and they think that they're going to, it's a miraculous change. And then the reality is, is like, no, I mean, peak week can help you. It's going to give you that, that extra little percentage, right? Which among champions, elite people, that, that extra half a percent, 1%, is the difference between first and second. But at the end of the day, if you still need to lose 10 pounds of body fat one week out, yeah. no peak week protocol is going to get you in contest shape in, in a week. Right. That's what we see. And that's where the dangerous practices come in where the, when I use, you, you hear and see coaches, and this is what I witnessed over the years is coaches prescribing and not just over the counter stuff. I mean, prescription grade diuretics, recommending them at high dosages, cutting out water. So that's what this paper was really important for me to uh, dive into and provide better practices. So really about peak week is looking at the manipulation of the different variables, looking at carbohydrate intake, water, sodium. Again, in, uh, if you manipulate too many things, especially if you don't have a practice runs, they can prove to be very disastrous. They can often backfire and they can be very dangerous in yeah. certain instances. So that's really important. And in some cases, really, doing less proves to be actually more because huh. you're kind of used to what, what you're used to. So what I see a, a witness over the years is people eat things that maybe they haven't eaten for the last four months, five months, they're eating them in large quantities, or they're just doing wacky things that they have no idea how the body's going to respond. Um, right. And and that's where some of the, the issues come about. So one of the things that we highly recommend in the paper is, hey, if you want to do some of these things, that's cool, but make sure you do some practice runs four, six, eight weeks out so you know how your body's going to respond. You can document that and you can be your own self-experiment. And, and then that way, by the time showtime comes, it, it's not a new thing. You've, you've tried it and, yeah. and you know what's going to work. And you know what kind of the quality of the everything that you're taking in. And then you're not manipulating a million variables because that's what happens. The other thing with peak week is, they manipulate everything. So you don't know yeah. what you're doing. So you're mm -hmm. doing the carb thing, you're doing the fat thing, you're doing the sodium thing, you're doing the water thing. And then like you're throwing everything against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. So you, it, you don't really know what works. Yeah, right. And yeah, like the cardinal rule of game day and or competition day nutrition is don't try something new. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the one like thing that everyone can agree on. But you get so wrapped up in like, oh, this is going to give me the edge and you want to win. And so I'm curious, first of all, what are the general goals of the of a peak week? Like, the, I mean, we know that you want to look leaner, you want to look more muscular. But from these factors that you manipulate, what are the overall goals of doing those things? And then what are some things that turned out to be decent? And then what are some things that just flat out had to go? Like, there's really no efficacy in this in any way, shape, or form. This just needs to go away. Like, the, it's just so flawed. The thinking is flawed. What are some things you discovered with writing that paper? Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, and that's also, we're going to cover some of this because, so the first thing is, what is the goal of peak week? So I think that's a very good question to pose at the beginning is, what are we trying to achieve? And ultimately, bodybuilding is judged on, obviously, muscularity, so size. It's, it's judged on symmetry, 
It's judged on conditioning. So what we call conditioning, people think it's, it's your cardiovascular. Yeah. In bodybuilding, that really means your how low your body fat levels are. And basically that definition that you can show. So if you have symmetry, you have conditioning, you have muscularity, you have proportion. Those are all different things that, that we want to look at. So particularly in peak week, what you're trying to do is create a, a muscle is full look. So that means that the muscle is not depleted. So you want it to be full primarily. It's going to be with glycogen and water, right? Primarily intracellular water is where, where it's going to hopefully be the most bang for your buck. Anything that's going to be covering that muscle. So anything between the skin and that muscle. Um, so obviously there's going to be a, a water layer there that's, that's normal. There's also going to be some fat there. So obviously if you're not lean enough, no matter what you do, not going to happen. And this is where I think like mistake 101 that people make is they think that the peak week is making them quote unquote watery. The, the, I've heard judges say, it's like, you're, you look watery. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that person isn't really watery. A lot of times they just need to lose an extra five or six or eight pounds of body fat. So they're mm-hmm. just really not conditioned enough. They're not lean yeah. enough. So what they really need is they probably needed a diet a little bit longer and be a little more patient to actually be competition ready. And of course, in, in competition, the reality is when you compete, it's like you get abs and people's like, oh, like, I think I'm ready. It's like, well, no, there's a difference between being beach ready. Where oh, yeah. It's got a nice six pack, right? Mm-hmm. And being competition ready where it's like, where you see these top level pros where like you see striations on striations. I mean, like, mm-hmm. and I'm not just talking the bottom part of the glutes are straight. I mean, it's feathered from yeah. here on out, all the way out. And then you're seeing the obliques, you see the muscle ins- you see the serratus into the obliques and mm-hmm. you see the muscle striations and the yep. separation. And, it, and to get to that level of conditioning, first of all, most people can't ever achieve it because it hurts to get to that level of conditioning. It's a lot of sacrifice. Sure. Yeah. And to get to sub 5% levels of body fat is painful and it's not pleasant and it's not sustainable either. For and sure. That aside, to even get there is not necessarily healthy or good for the body because your body's going to be fighting you tooth and nail. Hormonally, there's going to be a lot of things happening. Uh, so your your body is not really meant to be at, at a 4% body fat level. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things to get there. So that's one of the things that I see. But But the way the information is conveyed by coaches, by other competitors, when competitors really just need to be leaner, they often say, oh, because they're lean, obviously. If you're six, seven percent body fat, you're lean. Yeah, right? you're very lean. You're very lean, but you're probably not going to win in, in, <laughs> in a high level show. I mean, you're just not. It's, if, if, yep. if you're a highly competitive show, it, unless those, you have those deep striations, it's not going to cut it. So what I've heard coaches say or judges say is you need to be a little bit harder. Maybe you need to drop a little more water. And, mm-hmm. and that's misinformation right there. So it's probably not water. I'm going to say nine times out of 10, it's not water. It's usually you need to just lose more body fat. Sure. Um, once in a while, there is a hiccup where the person is particularly lean enough. And then they maybe did, they, maybe they carved up a little bit too aggressively. And then maybe they did what we call spill over in certain instances. And then that's going to maybe create that, that watery look. And you do see sometimes this in the pro level where they are highly conditioned. You, you'll see this once in a while where maybe they, they time things and not quite right. And then maybe they're, they're, they are actually a little bit, quote unquote, watery. They, they have yeah. a little bit of water, that subcutaneous water. And then this is where now you have some of these other variables of 
the water manipulation and, and the timing and trying to manipulate potentially the electrolytes to minimize that effect. But they're so intricately involved that you almost can't, it's like our body's always in homeostasis. So you, you tweak one thing, it's going to tweak another, and then it's just a downhill domino effect. So you have to be very careful with the timing of some of these things. And then of course, what it is that you're doing. And sometimes it's just better to just maybe leave it alone and see how your body responds with some of these. One of the things that works really well that we know is actually the carb loading. So we know carb loading is effective and there's different ways to carb load. And the carb loading is basically simple as it sounds, just basically increasing carbohydrate intake to increase glycogen storage in the muscle. So hopefully you get into a super compensation phase where you just increase the amount of glycogen that's in the muscle. And there's a few strategies you can do to get there. So one, one is the traditional way where you usually do a depletion followed by a loading of three or four days. Sometimes people do what's called a reverse loading. So they actually actually deplete a little bit earlier. So if the show's on Saturday, they'll deplete like the week before, they'll load really early and they'll backload. And then they just kind of maintain all the way through a uh, little bit safer. But other people will say, okay, if I'm competing on Saturday. I'm going to deplete maybe Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or maybe Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And then they'll, they'll load on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Okay. So on Saturday. So there's different strategies in which you can do it. Of course, you can just choose not to do it at all. I mean, if you're already looking great and you have a certain carbohydrate intake that, that works well for you and you're looking yeah. good. And that's why a lot of this, when I was coaching athletes and myself, there's a lot of note taking. So, so why do I weigh in the morning? How do I look in the mirror? Yeah. What's my backside look like? What was my meal intake? My, what did my meals look like the day before? How did I sleep? Or all of those things are going to play a factor. For sure. So you really have to keep notes and then see how your body is responding. And then certain foods might just not be agreeable with you. And even digestion wise too, right? Because that, yeah. that can lead to potentially one of the things that we see in carb loading is gastrointestinal symptoms. So there's actually some studies that show some of this. So uh, there was a, one of the better studies on carb loading was done on, on bodybuilders in, in Brazil. And they actually took people that were doing carb loading and people that weren't doing the carb loading. And then they actually took pictures and they gave these pictures to the judges. They also measured muscle thickness and you actually see an increase in muscle thickness from those that actually did the carb loading. The silhouette pictures as judged by the judges were actually better for those that carb loaded than didn't carb load. But one of the negative side things of that was that a lot of the people that did the carb loading had gastrointestinal issues, mainly diarrhea or gas. So that's something that could be an issue. So now maybe you you look great. Maybe you feel bloated. Maybe your stomach's a little bit distended. Um, And obviously not ideal to have diarrhea when you're wearing a speedo on <laughs> that can be a bad a combination there yes so and it's it, it is uncomfortable obviously if you're doing that and so yeah. one of the things that they didn't look at in that study was okay how much carbohydrate were they intaking what type of carbohydrates were they intaking so because mm-hmm. traditionally when i started bodybuilding i remember one of my training partners said you have to carb up with pancakes and then mm-hmm. i, I said, well, like how many pancakes and, and, and why only pancakes? Like, why can't I do a bagel instead of a pancake? Yeah, right. Like, yeah, yeah. Nope. It's gotta be pancakes, but they didn't have an answer for me. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is a traditional thing. Sometimes, and then you would see sometimes bodybuilders the day before eating very dirty. Like, I mean, they're out like at 
in and out McDonald's, having burgers, having fries. So they're essentially fat loading, carb loading, sodium loading, everything. So there's a lot of strategies that you can use, but obviously probably not ideal. If you haven't had a burger and fries in the last four months or three months, and now you're going to consume large quantities of that, your body's probably not going to respond very well to yeah, that. That's just asking for GI-ish. <laughs> yes. So I want to ask one question and then we're going to, we're going to move on to the next ones. So talked a lot about the carb loading. What would be a, a very like general starting point for that? So let's say someone did just kind of the classic protocol of maybe Monday through Wednesday, they depleted, and then they're going to carb load for the show on Saturday. What would that just in general look like so people can kind of wrap their mind around the numbers here? Yeah, so so typically the carb loading can be like as little as, to, well, first the depletion part, you usually have to take carbohydrates to, it depends what you're dieting on, but sure. you may have to go to under 150 for some individuals, depending on what your low carbs are before. Some people may have to go to under 50 grams a day or maybe 50 to 100. Usually 50 to 100 is kind of where most people fit in the carb depletion phase. And then in the loading phase, you have to kind of be careful with it. I tend to kind of be a little bit aggressive on the front end in terms of what I use. So minimum, you want to probably go with five grams per kilogram of body weight to start. But some individuals may need to go up to 10 or 12 grams per kilogram of body weight. So think of if you look at the numbers of that for a 100 kilogram individual is big person, right? But at 10 grams per kilo, I mean, you're eating a thousand grams of carbohydrate, yeah. which is a lot of, is a lot to intake. And then you want to kind of distribute that throughout the day. And, and then you have to be careful in the type. Like you don't want to do too much fructose because that can potentially... Uh, so you can do some fructose, but you want to kind of mix some of the things accordingly. Yeah. The things that you're used to. So a lot of bodybuilders typically, they consume a lot of rice, maybe potatoes. Yep. So if you're used to eating those things, you know, then probably continue consuming those things. So you may do cream of rice as your base if that is what you have been dieting on. So what you don't want to do is like, let's say you've only been eating primarily rice and then now you're going to do all of a sudden a ton of something else, right? Yeah, right. Not necessarily ideal for that. So there's definitely a range and you kind of have to, because there's people are going to vary in uh, what it, what works for them and how they're going to respond. So you really kind of have to see is like after, after your meals and at the end of the day, what does your body look like? Get up in the morning, weigh yourself. Obviously you're probably going to gain a little bit of weight. That's normal because it's going to, it's going to drive water. So for every gram of carbohydrate you're going to intake, it's going to drive about three to four grams of water into the muscle itself. Yeah. So you're going to get a little bit of that water weight, but it's going to be good water weight that you're gaining because it's where you want it, which is yeah, muscle. Yeah. You know. And then you, sure. you just kind of gauge it and, and go accordingly. And what you did ask me one question is probably one thing that you don't want to do a lot. And that's probably take a diuretic. I would say you don't need a diuretic and you should continue to drink water throughout the process. You may want to maybe titrate the water down a little bit. That may be a viable strategy that works for you. Some people keep it in all the way throughout the process. I typically do well with, I mean, I keep water in all the way into the system. And then I, there's never a point where I really don't drink water. Except maybe, maybe the morning of, I'm not going to necessarily drink, but I'm not necessarily dehydrated because I drank the night before. Right. Uh, and then you're able to consume that. And you may, you may, some people may need to titrate the water and take down some, but never going to zero. What you see sometimes though is, I mean, I've heard this and it's like, oh man, it, it's Saturday. I've only drank eight ounces of water on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So, so that you have somebody here who's at minimal water or no water mm -hmm. for 
24, 48 hours. And then some of them take a diuretic on top of that. So that's when you see a lot of the potential yeah. problems. Yeah, that is not that is not sound like a good recipe at all. Right. So, all right, awesome. That's, that's all really good stuff. And I would say like that to me makes sense. That would be an area where you probably have seen the most advances. It's because it might be the area that has just been manipulated the most or people have tried the craziest things to try to get that little extra seemingly ounce of fat off or ounce of muscle gain as far as like how you look. But so what are some other, what's another area that you've seen over the, that, that has really progressed in, in a good way over the years? Yeah. So I think another cool thing that we see is that I'm going to kind of shift into training a little bit. And that's kind of looking at training intensity. So it, and one thing is, hey, do we have to train a failure? Do we have to go heavy, go heavier, go home? That mentality is another thing that, that we sometimes need to explore. Actually, this subject actually came up in our bodybuilding SIG and this topic. There were some there was some misinformation in there of how people conceive some of these things. And, and even to this day, and then we're able to kind of discuss some of the science a little bit and look at that and see, for example, it's like, hey, first and foremost, it's like your muscles don't know heavy and they don't know light. They know they, they're going to respond to muscle tension and then they're going to respond to fatigue, right? So at the end of the day, we know now in the, well, you're a CSCS as well. So when, back in the day when they had the, what were the hypertrophy building? Oh, you know, the range. Yeah, yeah the range. Right. Yeah. And it was like, if you're not training in the eight to 12 or six to 12, then you're not going to get gain muscle, right? Or at least not yeah. ideally. But of course, now we know we can build muscle over a wide spectrum of ranges from the lower end up to the, you know, 25, 30, 35 plus repetitions. And the key is to go to failure and near failure. So you don't, and that's the other thing. You don't always have to go to failure to kind of approximate that. So I typically like to stay in that two to four repetitions away from failure most of the time. And then once in a while, push it to that failure to kind of see where that failure really is. And then I know what my baseline is uh, accordingly. Uh, but week in and week out, if I were to train a failure every set of every workout, I mean, I would never recover, especially now that I'm 47 years old and I've been training for 20 some years. I mean, I would never walk. Right. So. For sure. Kind of mitigate those things. And you can still make some gains accordingly with that. And we see that in the evidence where now we've seen meta-analysis. Brad Schoenfeld's led a lot of information on this where you actually see, they've looked at the meta-analysis of various studies and you actually see it's like, hey, we we can actually gain muscle with, with using 20, 30 repetition maximum loads. And we can get it just as effectively as when we're using eight or 12 repetition maximum loads. As long as Again, usually the two things that are driving that is volume equated. And number two is intensity should be uh, approaching failure. And that those two things are reached, then uh, you're usually going to hit the mark and be able to grow. Of course, the downside of that is as bodybuilders, all we really care is for size. Strength are kind of a secondary by factor. Right. I would say it should be ignored uh, because, I mean, ultimately, the stronger you get, the more muscle tension you're going to put on. Mechanical tension is going to occur. But at the same time, as a bodybuilder, do you really care if you squat 400 pounds or 500 pounds? Like for me, like not really, I, I really just want the muscle to grow. So my performance is not judged by how much I can lift. It's judged by how much it looks like I can lift. So, so hypertrophy is really my main driver. So my, my strength is a secondary yeah. variable of importance mm -hmm. that I think is my main driver is really, am I growing as a yeah. bodybuilder? Yeah. So I think another area, there's been some good advancements in understanding that mechanism 
And even the blood flow restriction training, that's very intriguing to me as well, because obviously we see people growing with, with 20 and 30% RM loads. Of course, you have to do, well, the nice thing with the BFR is you don't have to do as many reps, right? You yeah. can actually, you do the, if you do the traditional protocol, you do the 30, 15, 15, 15. And that first third of 30 usually feels pretty easy. But by the time you're doing the 30 second rest by the third or fourth set, uh, then you feel the mm -hmm. failure or your failure. Like, why can't I move? It's <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous. So I have questions around surrounding this topic of building muscle at different rep ranges, because we have these kind of classical ranges of this is the hypertrophy range. This is the muscle endurance range. This is the power range, whatever it is. We def, there are definitely different adaptations if things are done at those ranges, right? Like if you, and this is, of course, this, it's all dictated by, like you said, what's the volume equated? What's the load? What's the, like, what loads are we using? So when you say muscle can be built at every, basically any rep range or any rep scheme, as far as like five, five reps versus 12 reps versus 30, are there still differences there in amount of muscle gained as, as good as we can, I guess, estimate or compare? Or if say, as long as volume is equated, whether that's fewer sets for higher reps or more sets for lower reps, would we generally expect the same muscle growth? Although we still, correct me if I'm wrong on this, we still see different neuromuscular adaptations, right? Yeah. Because the lower rep, higher load protocol, while volume equated, will still lead to greater strength gains. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, right. am I right on any of that? Or I guess yeah. that's what I tried to like wrestle with in my head. Yeah, absolutely right. So, I mean, if strength is one of your, and realistically, to for the argument of that, I'm going to say like you can actually kill two birds with one stone if you can grow muscle and get stronger at the same time. And we all know we need to maintain strength. It's like, why wouldn't you then train in the lower repetition? And that's really why bodybuilders kind of train in that moderate. Most bodybuilders yeah. do train in the eight to 12 repetition range or maybe 10 to 15 repetition maximum range because it's kind of a sweet spot. I mean, if you've ever done a set of 30 or 40 reps, it's miserable, right? Yeah, and it takes a long time. So it's not very time efficient. So why do bodybuilders kind of grow into that six to 12, eight to 12, 10 to 15? Because it kind of hits to your point, you get some strength adaptations and you get the hypertrophy adaptations and you also can make the most out of your time because doing mm -hmm. so many sets of 20 or 30 or 40 reps takes forever. Not to mention that it's rather unpleasant. For me, I'd rather go heavier and finish out at eight, 10 or 12 reps mm -hmm. and have to carry that load. I want to do those to kind of to change my training up or maybe to give my joints a little bit of a break, but it's not necessarily my bread and butter to go to. And to your point, you also get the benefit of the neuromuscular adaptations of strength increases, which is something that is important, especially if we're looking at wellness and, and health in general. Why would you want to get stronger? Because the other will get you bigger, but mm -hmm. you're not necessarily getting stronger per se. Well, yeah. And then also if you are doing what I would consider very high repetitions, 20 plus, 20, 25, 30. Think of it just in your head. Think of a classical bodybuilding style workout. And now your typical rep ranges of that 8 to 12 to 15, 
jack that all the way up to 30 reps and maybe even decrease the sets, like cut them, cut the sets in half, you will be limited by your cardiovascular fitness. Like ultimately, if you do an entire session that way, you're going to be limited by number one, cardiovascular fitness and the muscular endurance, local muscular endurance aspect of doing those rep ranges. That will impact the load you're able to use, which will decrease your volume. So like there's elements of those things too. And like you, you, the joint thing for you that you mentioned is, is really, and, and that's a good point because on the other end of the spectrum, let's say we go into that five reps and below, that is another dynamic of it takes longer because you probably need to warm up to that weight, to the working weight. You get more beat up. And again, that might over time decrease training volume the volume you can use. I understand that we can gain hypertrophy through basically any range as long as it's structured in the right way. But there's lots of caveats, I feel like, that go into it. Absolutely. If it, it falls into one of these categories, just because you could doesn't mean you should. So just because you can gain hypertrophy in 20 or 30 rep ranges doesn't mean that should be your bread and butter for building this physique. Because to your point exactly, you want to maximize. There, there are little caveats where it's going to be beneficial for other reasons besides that. So I think that's really important. So now on this, on this topic, would you say that historically, like the issue in the bodybuilding world has been just going to failure way too frequently? And now we're realizing that you just need to go to one to two reps shy of failure is kind of that optimal, optimal range. Is that kind of like where the advancement has occurred? Yeah, there's been a lot of advancement in that. And I mean, there are, there was a mentality for many years, the old school bodybuilders in particular, it was the go hard or go home mentality. And I mean, mm-hmm. it, it treat intensity, don't get me wrong. And, and if you're actually training to one or two reps of failure, that's still not a walk in the park. That's still no. intensive. Yep. Um, but I think to really critically understand that is, is important that you don't need to literally go so you can't lift the weight anymore. And, and that's the way some people train. I mean, we have some old school people that used to train like that, that, that were very right. successful bodybuilders. I mean, and well, Ronnie Coleman is actually a pretty good example of that, right? right? I mean, Ronnie Coleman was, I mean, that guy was a beast in in the gym. Yeah. And I mean, I rarely ever saw him like not go to failure in that's <laughs> right. But you know, now look at him and he's in his mid fifties. And I mean, the, the guy is, can barely walk. I have many surgeries that he, has he had. And, and personally, I mean, I'm maybe 10 years younger than him, but I mean, I want to be able to walk and go up the stairs and and do all that. And I want to be able to be in the weight room when I'm 80. I don't want to be, I don't want to be bound to mobility issues. Yeah. And there's been documentaries about him saying, like, I wouldn't trade it for the world, but that's just him. That's him. Yeah. That's his cordis. And I mean, I admire that, but it wouldn't be my choice of Mm -hmm. how I get there. Yeah. Um, And then... From a results-oriented perspective, uh, the science is not showing that you really are sacrificing any hypertrophy gains. Is that correct? As far as going, not that you can't, obviously you can go to failure sometimes. It's not saying, I don't think anyone's saying that you can't, but that's the key, right? It's like, well, if we don't have to destroy ourselves and we can go to reps and reserve are really hot right now or has has been a hot topic, we can go one to two reps and reserve on your sets and you can get the same amount of muscle growth. I mean, that's a double win for sure. 
No, absolutely. And, and there was a nice meta-analysis done uh, where they actually looked at 15 studies looking at training to failure versus non-failure. And in this particular meta-analysis, that's basically what they actually found is like, hey, like there's really no significant difference in yeah. uh, resistance training to failure versus non-failure on strength and hypertrophy. So you really need to do it. But to your point that you said, which I think is very important, does that mean that you should never go to failure? And, and I'm going to highlight, you should go to failure periodically because I think that's where the problem is. Most people, including myself, I, I've caught myself mm -hmm. doing this. Um, if you never go to failure, um, I mean, going to failure sucks. And when you actually get there and you really see the intensity that you have to hit to go to failure, that gives you a baseline. So I remember, I'm going to give us a quick story. I was doing bicep curls in the gym one time and I was mindlessly curling. I don't know. I was doing 50 pounds on a curl and I was going and, and burned after 10 or 12 reps. Like, I mean, it, it was hard, mm -hmm. but I actually said, you know what? Like, I think I may be dogging this exercise a little bit. I said, let me see it. I'm going to, I'm going to take a mental break. I took about a five minute rest for between that, that once that were kind of burned. And then I just said, let me take this sucker to like, I can't lift this weight anymore. Yep. And I did my set of curls on this. And, and mind you, it started to burn and it hurt at about 10 to 12 reps. But when I mm -hmm. truly went earlier, I did over 20 reps with that weight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the reality is I was not even near two reps in reserve. I was actually like 10 reps away from being failure. So right. the reality was, is I really was not pushing to the limit that I should. And when you began to feel a little discomfort, that probably, you could probably get about five to seven more reps from there. And then you're probably gonna get closer to that failure yeah. rate. So yeah. I think it's a good point in their exercises too. It doesn't have to be every month, but I would say at least every, every maybe six, eight weeks and not in every exercise, but take one exercise and see like, let's see how many reps I can do with this particular weight. And then you can adjust to where you're, it's a litmus that's the threshold for sure to gauge uh, your progress. Yeah. And it's an important learning tool because if you're someone who, who decides basically your load and your reps per set based on RPE or reps in reserve, you have to know what, what a RPE of 10 is, or you have to know what an RPE of zero is. So you, that's an important uh, learning aspect of using those methods. So yeah, I think it's absolutely important to take it to true failure sometimes you get, you got to know what that is. So to, cause then if, yeah, and that's the issue with high rep sets, right? Because it's really hard to gauge if you're doing a set of 30, you really don't know like, God, do I have 32 in the tank or is it 35 or is it, can I do 40? It's very hard to gauge. So from a practicality standpoint, there can be benefits to going to failure and there can be drawbacks to really high rep sets from that perspective so yeah that's a really good point for sure let's go ahead and do one more and then we will go ahead and wrap up for the day cool yeah i think that the other one that i wanted to touch on was looking at the you know what let's actually get away from training and let's actually talk about the rigid versus flexible dieting i think yeah, that would be a pretty cool topic to, to end yeah. on because I think this is something that has been a hot topic for a while. And we used to think that for a long time, it's like, hey, you need to eat chicken and rice or chicken and broccoli or, or even better. My, my favorite misnomer is like, hey, you have to eat tilapia and broccoli because that thins the skin, quote unquote. That was like the most bland. Oh, my gosh. That does not sound appetizing. 
Yeah. Well, you know, it thins the skin, bro. Yeah, bro. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny uh, to say that. And in, in, uh, of course, we're joking. It does not thin the yes. skin. Um, yeah. But if you're only eating tilapia and broccoli, probably your calorie intake is going to be extremely low. Um, and you're going to create a, a large enough caloric deficit where you're going to get quite lean um, because it's going to be hard to not only that. And we're going to get to this in a second. It's so bland and disgusting. You're not going to want to overeat broccoli right. and tilapia. So mm-hmm. we're going to eat it and you're going to have enough. And then if you're eating six meals of tilapia and broccoli, it's very hard to overeat that. Yeah, 100%. So you're going to get pretty lean doing Mm -hmm. that protocol, which is why it's going to look like your skin is thin, but it's just because you're super lean. Yeah. That being said, my first exposure to bodybuilding was, hey, how do I get ultra ripped? And it was pretty easy. It was like, hey, I just basically do chicken and rice and some veggies sometimes, and then chicken and rice and some veggies. And then you kind of start cutting down the rice a little bit. And then Mm -hmm. me, me go all veggies and just your chicken. And then that was, so it was very bland in that regard, right? Or you may do some egg whites and a few other things, yeah. but it was very staple food. So the staple foods in bodybuilding are typically egg whites, oatmeal, yams, potato, rice. And then you may venture into a few of the green vegetables, which is typically like broccoli, asparagus. And that's the, the go-to protocol for bro dieting in, in a sense. Now, I'm not going to throw it all away because there are some elements there that are going to be important that I'm going to talk about. And actually, Lane Nord was one of the people that really kind of came across with the flexible dieting concept. It's like, hey, you don't have to eat all that bland stuff. It's like you can actually, as long as you create the caloric deficit um, and you hit your macros and, and you hit your calorie goals, like you can actually make it look a little bit sexier. You don't have to eat chicken and tilapia. You yeah. can actually eat pork or beef or other things. Yeah. So when you say flexible versus rigid, the rigid would be like, these are the foods I need to eat. Like only certain foods versus flexible would be, you can eat whatever foods you like and to a degree, as long as you hit your macronutrient calorie goals. Okay. Exactly. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that it's that approach of, like you said, you have way more flexibility in your food selection. So no food is essentially off the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality is though, is you just have to hit Certain you want to hit a certain protein goal, a certain carb, and then obviously put together your protein, your carbs, and your fats is going to lead to a certain calorie goal. And then as long as you reach that threshold and uh, you're progressing over time, then you're going to lose body fat. And, and you can, obviously, you can't lose body fat very well. And there's been a couple studies that they've done. It's like, yeah, the flexible dieting approach does work because at the end of the day, it's all based on creating a caloric deficit. But this is where some of the caveats that we kind of talk about come to mind. And even though you can with some of those, uh, what, what I see with certain individuals is when you have so much flexibility to so much foods, um, it tends to, for some individuals anyway, uh, from experience and working with them, to kind of have them fall off the rails. Because if you make the food taste really good, right? And, you're, mm-hmm. and it still fits your macros, but it tastes really good. Yeah. When you first start dieting, it's not too hard because yeah. your body isn't fighting you as much. But if you've lost 15, 20, 25 pounds of body fat over a course of 12, 15, 20 weeks, and you're getting down to those body fat levels where your body is not liking you anymore, it's telling And by the time you reach single digit body fat, it's already saying, hey, slow down a little bit. And once you're for men, if you're pushing down in that sub 6% body fat, sub 5% body fat, your body is now 
uh, saying, no, man, like you, yeah. you got to swap. So mm-hmm. now you have a lot of these hormonal things going on and it really goes beyond willpower in, in a lot of individuals because physiologically you're having hormonal things affect you. And Phys- physiologically you're starving. Like your body's like, what is happening? Our energies, our, our primary like storage form of energy is very low. Exactly. And so I'm guessing, yeah, go ahead. Continue with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you have ghrelin levels are sky high, leptin levels are down low, and, and all of this is sending signals to your brain. And I don't care who you are. And some people can't overcome it, but most people, you're going to succumb. And then mm-hmm. this is where, where you have the, the cravings. And this is where, when I worked with a lot of competitors over time, it's like, man, I, I couldn't do it anymore. And I just got up at midnight and I had a whole jar of peanut butter. I mean, and a whole jar, I mean, 2,000 calories worth of peanut butter, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now you start kind of jeopardizing your thing. So there's there are a few things that occur with that. So what occurs with the with the flexible dieting is it allows for some of that to be able to manage some of those cravings, but sometimes it can lead to overeating at the same time because the mm-hmm. food tastes good. And like I said, if you're limited to the foods that you eat, now your your body may be fighting you, but logistically, I can only eat these foods. They don't necessarily taste the best, right? Yeah. And because they're bland and they don't taste great, it's very hard to overeat that tilapia and broccoli. So there's something to be said for the rigid dieting in regards to that is that if in terms of willpower, because I think you're, you, if you're trained to, you, I'm only going to be able to eat these 10 foods or these 12 foods, it's hard to fall off the wagon because yeah. you're limited to those 10 or 12 foods. When you start adding a lot of the flexibility, it's like, oh, as long as I meet my macros, and this is, I mean, these are you know, it, things that I've done and yeah. things that I've experienced clients mm-hmm. do over time is when I give them a little bit more flexibility, sometimes they can't handle that flexibility. Yeah. It's kind of like a kid that goes to college who was very strict with the parents and then they go to college. <laughs> yep. they, can't handle the, they can't handle that responsibility. Yeah. So, and that's what occurs. And then they mm-hmm. end up eventually self-sabotaging. Because you have that hormonal melody, but I think you can overcome that by kind of going to the more bland. So I, I like a balance. Typically, I like to give a little flexibility at first, but it, as we get kind of closer to the show, and I found this works for me as well, it's like, hey, let's stick to the, the foods that first, we know that you digest well, you, you still enjoy them. You should still enjoy them for yeah, sure. But don't go so crazy because then you're trying to make these recipes to, to, to make the macros fit perfectly. And then you're adding all sorts of stuff. And then, and then it's hard. Then it, you made me make something good. It tastes good. But then you're not going to be able to necessarily stop because you, it yeah. tastes good. Yeah. You start adding hyper palatable foods in combination with low calories, caloric deficit, do that for an extended period of time. That can be hard to, to manage. That can be hard to control, so to speak. So for sure, yeah. I, that makes perfect sense. And then also, I think with the whole like certain foods kind of sticking with a certain menu of foods, I mean, I think it's why a lot of the kind of like programs people will follow that send you the food, like you, you get this for breakfast and lunch, and then you can do what you want for dinner. Like it's so clear, like just do this. And that can take a lot of the decision fatigue away. And it's just so I need to do X, Y, Z. And of course, we all know the larger issues there are sustainability, but it's the same with a bodybuilding or physique show. Like it's not a forever thing, but 
you do have to kind of figure out what's right for you in what's going to keep you on the straight and narrow when it comes to prep, right? Absolutely. And I will emphasize within those foods, you should still try to make sure you have some variety in micronutrient. You know, so you can 100%. get out of the micronutrient, but you can still make that the food database doesn't have to be your my fitness pal where it's like this, right? It should, <laughs> it can be a little narrower and you can still have a little bit of variety, but but all within this reasonable thing. And I did want to highlight there was one study that they actually did on individuals in a free living environment where they gave them a hey, you can eat as much as you want, but in, in one free living environment, they were in the lab. Mm -hmm. They put primarily non-processed foods, fruits, vegetables, et cetera, eat as much as you want. And then guess what? People didn't overeat that stuff. Maybe under eight, over eight unprocessed, healthy proteins and, and fruits and vegetables. But when they put ultra processed foods in there, guess what? Guess what? You know, they put potato chips. They put all these other highly palatable foods and they said, have at it, eat as much as you uh -huh. want. They naturally, people naturally yeah. overeat stuff. It's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. Highly palatable, calorically dense. That's not a good, that is just not a good combo no. uh, when it comes to trying not to overeat. So yeah, obviously there's a ton of facets to just the entire topic of physique, sports, bodybuilding, things like that. And if someone is interested in learning more about this, if someone wants to know like what are the all the mo most recent science-based practices, protocols, advances, I mean, you headed up a, ri a ridiculous certification for, for NASM. Who you got in, into this to take part in the certification, it, it's insane. Like, it's in a good way. Like, you just look at the names of the contributors. It's the who's who all down the list of who was involved in creating this thing. So why don't you go ahead and talk to, about the certification that you developed with NASA? Who's involved? What does it cover? And where can people find it? Love it. Yeah. So I had the opportunity to collaborate with the National Academy of Sports Medicine. This was a, a topic of discussion. We started in 2018 and finally came to fruition. We launched the product in 2022. And I was the lead subject matter expert in, in developing. So I was able to develop the outline and the things that we wanted covered. And I was also able to recruit some highly talented individuals. So I just reached into my, my, my friend's box and I asked Brad Schoenfeld, I, I asked Eric Helms, I asked, man, I mean, if you see the list, I built who's who it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Amazing uh, type of individuals. I have Darren Willoughby contributed. So I really had a, a lot of really good people. And what's cool about it is a lot of these people are not necessarily just practitioners, but I mean, the researchers, but a lot of them are actually bodybuilders. Chris Barrett contributed to it on Squint Stevenson contributed to it. And so we just had some a powerhouse and I'm, I'm leaving yeah. a lot of names. I, I know 20, it's seriously so many names. Yeah. yeah. And we really covered everything. We didn't want to leave a stone unturned. So we go everything into basic anatomy, physiology, metabolism, mechanisms of muscle growth. So kind of like a muscle physiology 101. We go into coaching strategy. We dive, do a deep dive in nutrition and nutritional programming, exercise programming. We talk about supplementation. We talk about drugs and performance mm. enhancement drugs. We talk about manipulating cardiovascular exercise. So I had Eric Trexler write one of the chapters in there. So I mean, just some amazing, bright individuals that all contributed. We have a chapter on the history of bodybuilding. So Eric Helms actually had a, has a friend who's a historian in bodybuilding. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Phenomenal in, mm -hmm. in learning about just the history of bodybuilding. 
So we literally cover bodybuilding from A to Z. It's over 20 chapters long. And then again, just top contributors in there. It's got little modules so you can kind of go through. And people just can go to the NASM and it's the physique and bodybuilding program, the certification program. It's it's amazing. And it's gotten a lot of good feedback from the individuals that have gone through it. And it really gives you a deep dive into into bodybuilding and yeah. all, all, everything that's involved. We talk about peak week. We talk about all of these different yeah. things. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, gosh, like, yeah, I, I think I told you this at, at the NSCA conference. I've got my master's in nutrition, been a CSCS now for, I don't know, almost 10 years. Uh, I, I, I'm not in physique sports per se. Like, I've never competed. I don't work with that population. But I seriously considered ta- like doing this just to learn from the people and the topics that you just mentioned. Because, it yeah, that's a lot of really good content. So I'll link that in the show notes. And Guillermo, what what else do you have going on that you want to talk about? Yeah, so I, I do have a new publication that just came out this month in the Journal of Shifting Conditioning Research, which actually looks at practices of bodybuilders as they're approaching peak week. So we actually, I collected data in bodybuilders, men and women actually, so physique competitors in, in at because there were more than just bodybuilders. We had mm-hmm. uh, men and women, physique, bigger, you name it. For sure. And then we, we had some, we collected some uh, body composition data. We also collected some training. What are they doing for training? What are they doing for diet? What are they doing for nutrition? What are they doing for cardiovascular work? We looked at mm-hmm. everything. I mean, a really comprehensive questionnaire that they filled out. And we looked at some of their peak week practices, drug practices even of some of these competitors. And so that just actually came out in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research this month. It's it popped ahead of print a few months ago, but it came out in the official journal in August, just literally a few yeah. weeks ago. That's uh, so awesome. That's cool. And then other than that, just been I'm doing some cool research here at the university. So I'm excited for that. I'm doing a, a squat study and looking at the effects of footwear, barefoot versus weightlifting shoes versus running shoes. We're looking at squat mechanics and EMG activity. In, in, uh, in the squat in that. So it's been cool. Uh, I'm also working on releasing, we're actually writing up a, a case study on a bodybuilder. He's actually a PED user. So he's an mm-hmm. enhanced bodybuilder and we're looking at the body, the practices of them. But we have a lot of cool data on blood work as related yeah. to more performance enhancement, drug use, and then the bodybuilding practices that they utilize to get ready for a competition and body composition data to track with that. So we're writing up that now. So pretty fun Man. stuff. He's constantly writing. He's every conference you'll be at. He's probably there. <laughs> NSCA, ISSN, ACSM. Um, and uh, yeah, obviously I'll link all the socials in the show notes where people can connect with you. And man, I just, yeah, thank you so much for your time and good luck with the upcoming school year. Thank you, man. Yeah. And for Instagram, add Dr. G fit. And I think you'll put that in there. You can yep. follow me there and I'd love to have you follow me and when I'm up to. All right. Thanks, Guillermo. Thank you, Corey. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.